This is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 10, Less is More, Part 1. We've entered the decade of the 2010s, and here, of course, my choice of Game Changers is going to be more speculative and subjective, or even more speculative and subjective than before, because none of these games coming up have established as much of a track record yet, and there might be more obscure games currently existing that turn out to be more influential. But hey, it's too late to stop now. Up to this point, the story of modern tabletop has been pretty Eurocentric, both in the intended sense of concentrating on games and culture from Europe and North America, and in the unintentional second sense of being mainly about what have come to be called Euro games. But my personal tabletop journey, as you might recall from way back in episode one, definitely wandered further afield than just Europe and North America. To begin with, I was a chess addict as a child. My local public library had a small collection of chess books, which I took out again and again. And then one day, out of what must have been a desperation or boredom, I, I looked at some of the books right next to them on the shelf, which turned out to be about other versions of chess. It was easy to make my own sets of these out of paper, and soon I was playing Zhangqi and Shogi and enjoying them too. My dad and I regularly played chess together, but I, I don't remember ever asking him to learn these for some reason. So all my games were against myself. Then there was Go. That was another book on the library shelf right nearby, and luckily it was written for a total beginner such as myself. More than Zhangqi or Shogi, Go hooked me in massively. It was so simple, so elegant, and yet so deep. Again, I didn't know anyone else who played, so all my games were solitaire against myself, and the first face-to-face game I played was in university when I worked for a summer at the Government of Ontario Department of Treasury and Economics as a research intern. One of the economists there was a Go player, and I remember so well us sitting down to play one day at lunch and him trouncing me so badly, but gently explaining my mistakes to me along the way. At my local library, there were also books about games from around the world. Mancala, Owari, Alquerque. I played homemade versions of them all. At the time, I was just having fun trying out all of these neat games, but I now realize that those books and the games I discovered therein inculcated in me a sense that tabletop was a human universal, that all cultures loved to play and had a drive to create organized sets of rules for games. All of them competitive, by the way, which is interesting, considering some people feel that it is cooperation and not competition that is the natural state of human interaction, but that is a whole other conversation. And so, we exit our Wayback Machine sometime in the late 1980s in Kanagawa Prefecture, just southwest of Tokyo, Japan. Nintendo have just released their Famicom, the predecessor of the 
Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or SNES. And the Famicom has revolutionized home entertainment in Japan, practically becoming the sole source of joy for Japanese children. The Kanai family is no exception. Their only son, Seiji, is obsessed with it, although he still will occasionally play card and board games at his friends' houses. Then Seiji starts junior high school and is introduced to tabletop role-playing games. Suddenly, he's not only lost interest in the Famicom, for the first time in his life he starts to think, hey, I can create one of these too. So he starts to work all by himself on his own role-playing game, but after coming up with the statistics for long swords, goblins, and dragons, he gives up. Making your own RPG from scratch is a lot of work, it turns out. Well, he doesn't actually give up. He, he does keep plugging away at the unnamed rule set for a few years until it gets to a point where he thinks he can show it to somebody, maybe even get it published. But where does a Japanese kid go to do that? In the early 1990s, he goes to Comic-Kit an indie fan expo that started in 1975 in Tokyo and which has now grown to be the largest fan convention in the world, with attendance of half a million people twice a year. Kamiket was and is organized around doujin circles, individuals or groups publishing their own comics, video games, software, music, novels, clothing, usually devoted to a particular manga genre or anime series. Kanai decided to try his luck showing off his homemade RPG at comic and swiftly realized he was in over his head. By his own admission, his game was no good. His dream of being a successful game designer evaporated. Then, Magic the Gathering arrived in Japan. And like hundreds of thousands of others around the world, Kanai became a magic fanatic. And like hundreds of others, he decided to create his own collectible card game. But once again, the task proved too formidable for him. Maybe his mind just didn't work on such epic scales. Or maybe, like myself, he found open-ended tasks too overwhelming. Maybe he needed a tightly structured and restricted design space in order to let loose his creativity. In any event, within a few years he had found his way to Catan and Eurogames, particularly those designed by French designer Bruno Faiduti. Faiduti's 2000 game Citadels was a very influential game in its time, being one of the first to employ what has become known as the role selection mechanic, where what players get to do on their turn depends on choosing from a menu of archetypes or occupations. Faiduti's 2001 game Dragon's Gold was particularly inspiring to Kanai, with its combination of role selection, push your luck, and negotiation. Kanai's first attempt at a game was The Thorn Princess and the Four Knights in 2006, which took the Mario Brothers trope of rescuing a beautiful princess from a castle and twisted it around. This princess had locked herself in the Thorn Castle and didn't want to be rescued. Instead, she issued forth a stream of random demands which players competed to fulfill. The first player to fulfill three requests got to escort her from the castle and win. 
Then there was Chicken Warrior, which dispensed with a board and used cards only. From this point on, Kanai's designs were almost entirely card-based, mainly due to the fact that he had a friend who could supply decks of blank cards for 30 yen apiece. That's about 30 cents in U.S. monies. Kanai bought a ton of decks off of his friend, and the cards became his palette. Chicken Warrior also from 2006, was a semi-cooperative game in which players had to cooperate to defeat monsters, but competed to be the one who dealt the most damage. You might recognize this as the basic idea behind the legendary series of deck builders that began unrolling in 2012, but as is implied from its title, Chicken Warrior was much more modest in scope. Bit by bit, Kanai began carving a niche for himself as a designer who set himself a very restrictive set of parameters, challenging himself to create as interesting a game as possible out of the fewest possible components. This was, in part, due to economic constraints. He was a poor student, living at home, and possibly, in part, as I said above, due to the fact that he tended to become overwhelmed when the design space was too large. But, consciously or unconsciously, I believe Kanai might also have been drawing on an aesthetic with a long and rich history which is uniquely Japanese. Today, I think Westerners associate Japanese culture with things like bright colors, over-the-top action, a slightly dreamlike, almost hallucinogenic sense of plot, and perhaps a little too much preoccupation with the décolletage of schoolgirls. But... These developments are a product of Japan's post-World War II embrace of Western culture, a byproduct of its destruction and rebuilding at the end of that war. As an island, Japan had gone through long periods of isolation interspersed with periods of openness to the outside world, where it took in new influences. In the 6th century CE, monks from Korea arrived on a diplomatic mission to Japan, bearing Buddhist religious texts from continental Asia. By the 12th century, Buddhism had become the predominant faith in Japan, and the version which germinated and took root the most was originally called Jan, and in Japan was known as Zen. Obviously, this is neither the time nor the place to go into depth about Zen or its place in Japanese culture. I happen to have been a student of it for a long time. I was introduced to it in the book Gödel Escherbach by Douglas Hofstadter back in high school, and I've even co-written a book about it, Zen in Ten Simple Lessons, available in deep discount bins everywhere. I'm not going to do Zen justice here, and I apologize. What I will say is that it was Zen's influence which led to a kind of less-is-more attitude, which in Japan is called ma, open or empty space, that permeates traditional Japanese art and design, from the evocative 17-syllable haiku poetry of Basho, to the sand garden of the Ryoanji Temple, to the almost blank ink drawings of Chikuso, and yes, Marie Kondo. Many Westerners don't understand that the minimalism of Zen culture continues today under the shiny exterior. And Kanai himself said in an interview with the Meeple Syrup podcast that working with a severe set of restrictions is a greater spur to creativity for him than being told, design whatever you want. So, 
At a time when Uwe Rosenberg was designing big, heavy games with tons of components, like Agricola and Caverna, and with others trying to duplicate that success, Kanai over in Japan was trying to see how few components a game could have and still be engaging and interesting. His next game, 2008's Cheaty Mages, had 120 cards and 30 coin chips. Players took the role of wizards betting on an arena-style combat between fantasy monsters. Sure, you could cast a spell to fudge the odds in your favor, but if you caught the eye of one of the referee judges, your spells could be debuffed, or worse, your champions could be disqualified. 2009's Chronicle was a trick-taking game. Each trick round had a history or event card, which changed the goal for that set of tricks. Sometimes you wanted to win all the tricks, sometimes none, sometimes all the blue cards, and so on. Plus, individual cards had special powers when played. Chronicle had 48 cards and 12 chips. And 2011's Brave Rats, originally simply called R, as in the letter R, was a two-player-only simultaneous action selection game where each player had a hand of eight cards, each of which, of course, had special powers. The first player to win four rounds won the game. Sixteen cards is all the game had. Could he beat that record? In a way, yes. Kanai's next game distilled the mechanics of special card powers, bluffing, and deduction down to 16 cards, plus a dozen cubes to keep score. Plus, it was not for two, but three or four players. That game, our next game changer, he called Love Letter. In Love Letter, players are supposedly trying to woo a princess by getting a mash note to her, but the gameplay doesn't really bear that out, and it doesn't matter. Instead, players are racing to win a certain number of rounds, the specific number depends on the player count, by being the last suitor standing in each round. To start with, players are each dealt a single card from the deck with one further card dealt into the box out of play. This step adds a crucial amount of uncertainty into what otherwise would devolve into a game of pure deduction. Starting with the winner of the last round, each player draws the top card of the deck and then plays one of the two cards in their hand, performing its action. Five of the 16 cards are guards of rank one. The other 11 are ranked from two to eight, with only one each of rank 6, rank 7, and rank 8. The ranks of the cards are important for various game purposes, with players holding higher ranks able to eliminate those holding lower ones. Even more important are the card's powers, or restrictions. The highest rank card, the princess of course, beats all the others, but if discarded, forces that player to drop out of the round. Each round plays out in about five minutes, so a complete game is easily finished, even with four players, in half an hour. Kanai released the game in August of 2012, in Japanese, the way he had all his others to that point, independently, under his own imprint, Kanai Factory. Later that autumn, he took it to the Tokyo Game Market, which had grown out of Comic-K as a separate convention devoted to indie, non-electronic entertainment. 
Here, the story of love letter again intersects with another unique aspect of Japanese culture. In this case, the concept of kairetsu, which are industrial associations or cartels. Essentially, they embody a fusion of Western capitalist tools and institutions with the more cooperative, consensus-driven culture of East Asian society. Kairetsu are a post-World War II phenomenon arising almost literally from the ashes of the Zaibatsu, which were mainly vertically integrated family-owned conglomerates. There was a holding company at the top which controlled the entire supply chain of a product, as well as the financial institutions and resources necessary to keep that company expanding. The four biggest Zaibatsu were Sumitomo, Mitsui, Mitsubishi, and Yasuda, and you should recognize at least one of those names because Mitsubishi is still alive and well. They were very big supporters, politically and financially, to Imperial Japan, and as such were targeted for dissolution by the victorious allies after World War II. Instead, they evolved into less militaristic but equally, if not more economically powerful, oligopolic institutions called kairetsu. And the tiny world of tabletop board games had its own version of a kairetsu, Japan Brand, a non-profit collective of Japanese publishers and designers who had joined together to pool their connections and resources and coordinate their releases so they wouldn't step on each other. Japan Brand recognized Love Letter as a potential door opener to international publishers and produced a second edition with Kanai in October. By December of 2012, Kanai had licensed Love Letter to the Alderac Entertainment Group, or AEG, which had started as a role-playing game and collectible card game publisher in 1993, and which had expanded into the board game market in 2009 with a slate of games that included Thunderstone, the deck builder which we looked at in Episode 7. AEG packaged Love Letter in a small velour drawstring bag to emphasize its portability, and from there, Love Letter was launched onto the international stage, where it was universally welcomed. People just couldn't get over how much gameplay there was in a game with just 16 cards and a few scorekeeping cubes. Very quickly, the term microgame was coined to describe Love Letter, and soon, both designers and publishers began to think small and try and duplicate Love Letter's success, as indeed did Kanai himself. That was part one of episode 10 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table. <laughs>